In our text today, I want us to notice three things that are characteristic of true worshipers. Number one, true worshipers remember God's works. True worshipers remember God's works. Number two, true worshipers reject worldliness. True worshipers reject worldliness. And then third, true worshipers are rooted in the word. True worshipers are rooted in the word. Our first point is going to be longer than the second uh, two points. So keep that in mind. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Before we even get to what Paul tells the Christians at Rome to do, do you notice the strong language at the beginning of the verse? He says, I appeal to you. That is a strong word. The King James says, I beseech you. There's this passion behind this request. And the word that he uses next is what makes Christianity unique. That word is therefore. That therefore makes Christianity unique because it points us back to everything that came before in the first 11 chapters. Those who are members here or you visit a lot, you know that we're going through the book of Romans. And so Pastor Garrett has been preaching through Romans. We're on chapter, just finished chapter four last time, and next week we'll come back beginning in chapter five. Well, the Apostle Paul is pointing his readers to what happened in those first 11 chapters. A brief summary of it is that he showed us that everybody is guilty before God. Every single person. We're all guilty because we have offended God with our sin. So whether that's the non-religious person in chapter 1 or the religious person in chapter 2, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And what that does, that falling short of the glory of God produces is wrath. The wrath of God. Now some people get immediately offended as soon as they even hear anything about the wrath of God. But I just want you to trek with me, if that's you, because there cannot be true love without there being wrath. What I mean by that is that you cannot actually love something unless you're also opposed to anything that goes against that thing. So, so hatred or anger is actually implied in anything that's true love. We talked about this a few weeks, a few weeks ago about how the, the, the opposite of love is indifference. If you, if you don't care, then you don't love. Well, God cares about his glory. And we have all just, just pushed it off to the side. We've acted as though God doesn't exist, like we don't care about him, like we would want him, we'd rather him be dead than in our lives. And what that does is it brings about the response of wrath. All of us are condemned. But in the mercy 
of God. And we see this in chapter 3. God, in his grace, in his kindness, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live a perfect life that we could not live, to die on the cross as a substitute in our place, to be raised from the grave three days later so that every single person who places their trust in Jesus Christ shall be saved from the wrath to come. Romans is just working out that story, that old gospel story that I will never get tired of telling week after week after week because this is our lives. We have no life apart from this gospel. And so that's a brief summary of what's implied in the therefore. It's the mercies of God. But here's why, here's why it's unique. It's unique because Every other religion has some form of offer yourself to God, therefore you'll be accepted by him. No, Christianity says you've been accepted by him, therefore offer yourselves to God. That, that therefore makes all the difference in the world. Non-Christian religions say, do good works and God will rescue you, therefore. You know, even in distorted forms of Christianity, such as false Christian Bible Belt religion, right? There's a true Christian Bible Belt religion, but there's a false Christian Bible Belt religion. And what that says is... Say a prayer, evangelize, study the Bible, go to youth group, and therefore you'll be acceptable before God. That's not Christianity. It's moralism. We're Christians. We say, God, you've rescued us through Jesus Christ, and now therefore, in light of that, I'm going to... I'm going to do these things. Those things are good, evangelism and prayer, and those things are good, but they must come as the response to what God has already done. And so that brings up a question. Where is your therefore? Where's your therefore? That rhymes. Where's your therefore? Does it come before or after salvation. If it comes before, in other words, I do these things, Christian things, or any other kind of religious things, therefore God accepts me, the call is to repent and to turn from any kind of self-motivated attempts to make yourself right before God and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And so, You notice that he says, therefore, brothers, he's talking to people who are already saved and he's telling them how to live for the glory of God. Now, as he continues his appeal, he makes references to the mercies of God. And you notice that mercies is plural and not singular. He has particular acts of mercy in mind. The mercies of God are the basis 
of this strong pleading, this appeal. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, I appeal to you, therefore, by the judgment of God, although he could. He doesn't say, I appeal to you by the holiness of God, although he could. And there's other passages elsewhere where those things are used as motivation. But here he's saying, I appeal to you by the mercy of God, the mercies of God. Why? Because there's nothing like mercy, tender mercy, to melt the rebellious heart. There's nothing like the mercies of God to propel us to love him and to serve him. He's speaking tender words to his audience and by extension us. There's a sweetness in obedience that's motivated by mercy. You know, a cruel slave master can produce outward obedience only, but only a benevolent heavenly father can melt a cold heart with his mercy. And so he appeals according to the mercies of God. Now, what are these mercies that are being referred to? I want to walk through some of them, and I want you to walk with me. I'm going to go through these relatively quickly. I want you to turn back to chapter 3 of Romans. I just want you to follow along with me as we just rehearse these mercies. What are these mercies that he's appealing on the basis of? We've seen these with Garrett's sermon. We'll start at verse 24 of chapter 3. This is not exhaustive. Romans 3.24, we see the mercy of justification that is being declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus. At the end of chapter 3, verse 24, we see the mercy of redemption that Jesus Christ has purchased us with his blood. In chapter 3, verse 25, we see the mercy of propitiation, that that wrath of God that I spoke about earlier, that Jesus Christ has taken that wrath and therefore averted, turned away that wrath from us. In chapter 4, verses 7 and verse 8, we see the mercy of forgiveness of sins. Turning to chapter 5, verse 1, we see the mercy of peace with God through Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 2, the mercy of access to the grace of God. Chapter 5, verse 2, the mercy of the hope of the glory of God. Chapter 5, verse 3, the mercy of joy even in the midst of suffering. Chapter 5, verse 5, the mercy of the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 5, the Holy Spirit himself. Chapter 5, verse 8, the love of God. Chapter 5, verse 8, Christ's death for us while we were still sinners. Chapter 5, verse 9, saved from the wrath of God. Chapter 5, verse 11, reconciled to God. Chapter 5, verse 20, abounding grace. Chapter 5, verse 21, eternal life. Chapter 6, verse 2, we died to sin. Chapter five, chapter 6, verse 5, we're united with Christ in his death. Chapter 6, verse 5, we're united with Christ in his resurrection. Chapter 6, verse 13, we're brought from death to life 
by God. Chapter 6, verse 18, we're freed from slavery to sin. Chapter 6, verse 18, we're now slaves of righteousness. Chapter 6, verse 22, sanctification, that is conformity into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Skip over to chapter 8, verse 1, the mercy of no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 3, we're set free from the law of sin and death. Chapter 8, verse 9, the indwelling spirit of God. Chapter 8, verse 15, adoption as sons. Chapter 8, verse 17, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Chapter 8, verse 23, the promise of the redemption of our bodies. Chapter 8, verse 26, the spirit's help in our weakness. 8, 27, the intercession of the spirit. 8, 28, all things working for our good. 8, 29, foreknown by God. 8, 29, predestined to conformity to Christ by God. 8, 30, called by God. 8, 30, justified by God. 8, 30, glorified by God. 8, 31, God is for us. 8, 32, he promises to graciously give us all things. 8, 34, Christ Jesus intercedes for us. 8, 39, Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Skipping over to 918, the sovereign mercy of God. 923, the riches of his glory made known to vessels of mercy. 925, Gentiles called the people of God. 933, we will not be put to shame. 1017, faith that came from hearing the word of Christ. 1020, we found God when we weren't seeking him. 115, we're chosen by grace. 11.17 grafted into the people of God. 11.22 the kindness of God. 11.33 the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. That's mercy. Tender mercies. Is there any wonder why it's plural? That's about 50. And I didn't name them all. Surely that's why Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Hallelujah. True worshipers remember God's works. And so it's in view of these mercies that we're told to do something that is absolutely radical. He says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice, that's radical because a living sacrifice is a contradiction in terms. Sacrifices by definition are to be killed. What's happening here? Now I think we get a clue into what Paul is talking about because he uses similar language a few chapters earlier in chapter 6. So in chapter 6, a few pages over, verse 12, he says this. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And then listen to this language. Do not present or offer your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present or offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments 
for righteousness. So I think that's the idea of a living sacrifice. It's, it's taking this body that we have, we've, we've died with Christ, but now we're alive in him. And so it's taking our, our actual body and using it, offering it to God for his glory. You know, there's a, there's a movie called 12 Years a Slave that's in theaters now. And it's based on the true story of Solomon Northup, who was a freed black man in uh, upstate New York in the 1840s. And at some point, he's kidnapped and sold into slavery. Now, when he was free, he was an accomplished violinist. And one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the movie is, is when he's forced to play the violin at a slave auction when people are being mistreated. And I mean, it's, it's just, it's heartbreaking. So, so at one time, he was free playing the violin to captive audiences who were free people, right? And he was free while he was doing it. He's sold into slavery. Now he's in bondage. He's using his body to do the same thing, but now it's in a completely different context for people who are mocking him. Well, for Christianity, and Christianity is just the opposite. We were once under the tyranny of a cruel slave master of sin, and we used our bodies in the service of that master. Well, now God is saying, listen, you've been redeemed by Christ. Now use that body in a completely different context, same body, different context for the glory of the one who purchased your freedom with his own blood, Jesus Christ. And that's what we're called to do. It's the logic of 1 Corinthians 6.20. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. We see here that that the body is actually important in Christianity. So what we do with our bodies matters. Paul is saying, what he's saying here, it actually went against the common Greek notion at the time that anything having to do with the body was evil and something to be escaped from. This passage teaches us to not make too sharp of a divide between the physical and the spiritual. Paul here, he says that doing something with our bodies, that is offering them as sacrifice, he says that is spiritual worship. What we do with our bodies is spiritual. And this is why true worship is bigger than what we do on Sundays. It's not less than what we do on Sundays, but it's more. It's more. Matthew Henry explains living sacrifice in this way. He says, it's, he says, the presenting of the body to God implies not only the avoiding of the sins that are committed with or against the body, but the using of the body as a servant of the soul in the service of God. The using of the body as a servant of the soul in the service of God. And so what does this look like? Literally, it looks like hands that used to strike out in anger now being used to help others. It looks like 
eyes that were caught up in lustful images, now those same eyes looking for opportunities to love people. It looks like mouths that were once used to tear down and to gossip and to complain now being used to speak words of encouragement, to speak praises to God, to build others up. And Paul goes on to tell us how we are to present our bodies to God. And he uses two words in verse 1, holy and acceptable. Let's deal with them one at a time. First, holy. Christians, by definition, are holy. (laughs) First Peter 2, verse 9, refers to Christians as a holy nation. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. Ephesians 4.22, we're commanded to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There's no such thing as an unholy, a completely unholy Christian. It's a contradiction in terms. J.C. Ryle in his classic book called Holiness, I highly recommend it. He defines holiness in this way. He says, Holiness is the habit of being one mind with God, according as we find his mind described in Scripture. It is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. He who most entirely agrees with God, he is the most holy man. I think that's good. It's it's, it's talking about agreeing with God, having the mind of God. And that's what we see. That's why he's telling us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we might think God's thoughts after him. For us to truly worship God, we must pursue holiness. This is something that has gotten lost in our time. Praise God for the emphasis on the gospel. Praise God for the emphasis on grace. But where God is truly at work amongst a people, it will be characterized by holiness. We must pursue holiness. And you know, it's common today for people to emphasize one over the other, right? So you have people who say, no, it's all about mercy and grace. But then they never talk about sin or holiness. But then... On the other side, you have those who, all they do is talk about holiness, but they do it in the most unloving, ungracious manner imaginable. We want to avoid those extremes. The grace and mercy of God and holiness are not at odds with one another. Again, in our text, it's by the mercies of God. In light of these mercies, be holy. (laughs) They go together. You cannot separate them. So let us at, at Del Rey, may we be characterized by both a love for the grace and mercy of God as well as a fierce pursuit of holiness. Single people, when it comes to choosing a potential spouse, 
let, let, let holiness be at the top of your list. Oftentimes we go uh, cute, um, successful, and then if they love the Lord, okay. Nah, no. Let holiness be at the top. Because when, when you're in the middle of marital conflict, you are not thinking about how cute that person is. Come on, come on, married people, y'all know. Holiness. The second word is acceptable. Acceptable, holy and acceptable. Another way of saying that is pleasing. And this, this should really cause us to pause for a second because this is teaching something that is astounding, which is that we can actually please God. Believers can please God. He says, holy and acceptable. It's one of those statements that it's really hard to believe, but it's right here. So how is that? Because we know, we know that God is completely perfect. We know that we're sinful. So how can a sinful person actually please God? Well, I believe that it's because of God's grace through faith. Because of God's grace through faith, we're able to actually please God. So two places in Romans one in chapter 1, verse 5, and the other in chapter 16, verse 26, Paul uses this phrase, the obedience of faith. That is, the obedience that comes from faith. Now, in, in Romans fourteen twenty-three, Paul says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. But the flip side of that is, Whatever does proceed from faith pleases God. Why? Why is that? It's because true faith depends on God. True faith reaches out from ourselves to him. God has set things up in such a way that he would get all the glory. And when we, in acts of faith or acts that are prompted by faith, give him the glory and therefore He's pleased with those things. Listen to Paul's prayer in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, and see if you don't hear the same idea. He says this, To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Same idea. Every work that comes from faith. For what reason? Or what's the goal in 2 Thessalonians? That the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so acts of obedience that are prompted by faith, not prompted by moralism, not prompted by self-righteousness, but prompted by faith in God and love towards God, God is actually pleased with those acts of faith. Praise the Lord. We can please God. But we must remember, it all goes back to the mercies of God. We'll never do anything acceptable to God or for God until we're first accepted by God. We'll never do anything acceptable to God until we're first accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ. True worshipers also 
reject worldliness. So we remember God's works, and true worshipers reject worldliness. Verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You know, there's no question in my mind that the biggest obstacle to the kind of worship being talked about in verse 1 is worldliness. Worldliness is the biggest hindrance to true worship. If we're going to be true worshipers of God, we must reject worldliness. Now, typically, worldliness is thought of as all the rules that you'll find at a fundamentalist Christian college. So what kinds of movies you watch, what kind of music you listen to, the way you dress, tattoos, etc. But while those things may, they may reflect a heart of worldliness, not necessarily, but they might, they're not at the heart. At the heart of worldliness. You see that phrase? It says, conform to this world. It literally, world literally means age. Conform to this age. Galatians 1.4 says that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. That is, the mindsets of this present world. This age contrasted with the age to come. So you have, you have this age, which is characterized by the temporal, and then you have the age to come, which is characterized by the eternal. Paul is saying, don't be conformed to a mindset that's just focused on the temporal pursuits of our present age. You know, on Sundays when we come, we're... we're we're concerning ourselves with the age to come, right? This is all about the age to come. So in, even in Hebrews chapter 6, you know, it says that we've tasted of the goodness of the word of God and of the powers of the age to come. This is, this is not just a Sunday service. There are grand, huge weighty realities that are taking place here. We're talking about heaven. We're talking about hell. We're talking about eternal joy in the presence of the king. We're talking about the the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity indwelling us. We're talking about the lamb who was slain. We're talking about the glorious father who was and is and is to come. These are huge, huge things. This is the power, the powers of the age to come that we're tasting in every week. And so, and so he's saying, listen, this is what we are to be consumed with. This is what our, our, our mindset should be, should be shaped or framed on are these realities, not merely the realities of this temporal passing world. In in his, his book, uh, Losing Our Virtue, David Wells says this about worldliness. This is a great definition of worldliness. He says, That system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world, and which makes sin look normal 
and righteousness seem strange. Worldliness is what makes sin seem like it's normal and righteousness look weird. That's worldliness. We're being told to not give in to that. Do not live in such a way that indicates that you're only concerned with this present age. What is? What is the spirit of this age? You know, James Boyce, in his commentary on Romans, he identifies four isms that characterize our age. He wrote it in the 80s, but I think it applies just as well now. Four isms that uh, characterize our age. The first is secularism. Secularism which negates God. What secularism seeks to do is just to completely move God out. Just squeeze him out. We don't want anything to do with God. If God comes up, it gets weird. As long as God remains personal and privatized, the God in your heart, cool, but please don't start talking about him. Right? That's secularism. It negates God. The second ism is humanism. Humanism, which exalts man. Right? So the mindset of humanism, what it does is it puts man at the center of everything. Man and, 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 and man's happiness as the ultimate goal. It's humanism. Then you have relativism, which negates truth. Relativism negates truth. Oh, my truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. Believe what you want to believe, right? There is no absolute truth, even though that's an absolute statement right there, right? It's self-contradictory, but yet that's one, that's one of the main mindsets, And then, finally, materialism, which exalts things. Materialism, which exalts things. These must be rejected. These mindsets must be rejected if we're going to be true worshipers. I like the J.B. Phillips translation or his paraphrase of this verse. He says, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. (laughs) That's good. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. The the picture there is that our souls are like wet cement. And, and, And if we're not careful, they will take the shape of whatever it is that's mostly influencing us. So if you want to become worldly, you know what you have to do? Nothing. Just do nothing and you will become worldly. Because, because the world or the spirit of this age is like, is like a current. And if we do nothing, if we don't fight against that current, we're just going to get swept away on the broad road. There's a reason why the road to destruction is broad. It has to be an active fight against these things. And so how do we fight? It brings us to our last point. True worshipers are rooted in the word. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When he says be transformed, he's describing something that is pretty spectacular. The word for transformed is only used four times in the whole New Testament. Here in this passage, twice in the Gospels, and then once in 2 Corinthians. Listen to how it's used in 
the Gospels. Matthew 17, verse 1 and 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus was transfigured. That's our word. That's the word. Before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. The word that Paul is using is the same word that's used of Jesus in his glorious transfiguration. That is spectacular. It's also used in Mark in the parallel passage. And then one more time in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed, same word, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So it's a spectacular thing that he's talking about. And so how does this transformation come? It comes through the word of God. Now we looked at this a couple weeks back. We looked at uh, when we were talking about the the nature of true worship and spirit and truth. And we we looked at John 17, 17, where, where Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And so if there's going to be any growth, uh, any, any conformity into Christ's likeness, it's going to come as the word of God is into our hearts and then applied in our lives. That's why, that's why the word is at the center of everything that we do. Because that's where true change comes, through the word. Mind renewal comes through the word of God. Worldliness can always be traced in some way back to over-familiarity with our culture and under-familiarity with the scriptures. Over-familiarity with the culture and under-familiarity with the scriptures. From moment to moment, we're either thinking more like God or we're thinking more like this age. There's there's no neutral. We're either moving more towards godly-like thinking or more towards like thinking like this age. What's interesting is that this word transformed, it's a passive word, right? So it says be transformed. He's not saying transform yourself. It's a passive word. God is the one who does the transforming, and yet we're being commanded, (laughs) We're being commanded to have something happen to us. You can't transform yourself, but what you can do is you can put yourself around the means that God uses to bring about transformation. And that means is the word of God, the word of God. And look, I know it's not easy. (laughs) It's not easy. Anytime we set out to honor God, you can absolutely expect that there's going to be opposition. How many of us have started off, January 1st is coming around again, and we start off with our Bible plan. And the first week, we're like, yeah, we're running hard. But then we miss a day or two, and then we fall behind, and we feel, oh, man, I have to read 19 chapters to get caught up again, (laughs) right? And then before you know it, it's like by the end of February, we're wiped out. I know it's hard. It's a difficult thing. So some things that have helped me, and look, I'm, I'm speaking as one for whom it's hard as well. Tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm not going to feel like reading the Bible if, if, if Monday is like most Mondays are. 
So what am I going to do? I'm going to have to fight because the world is pressing in on me. The world, see, the world doesn't stop pressing in on you because you're not reading the word. It, it continues to try to squeeze you into its mold, right? Some of the things that have helped me are reading a chapter of Proverbs. So look at the month, 31 days, month, just read a chapter a day, right? Sometimes we get bogged down because it's like, I don't know what to read, or I feel so overwhelmed. This book is just, it's so big, it's so thick. Where do I start? That's one thing you could do. Just start with, just, just read the Proverbs, pray, ask God for, for wisdom as you do it. Another thing you can do is read the chapter that we're going to be preaching on the upcoming week, right? That's something that gets encouraged from the pulpit, you know? So you see, okay, next week we're going to be looking at Romans 5, and so let's just, every day, just, just read through the chapter. As we do that prayerfully and as God is pleased to work, he's changing us. He's making us more and more like Jesus. We're starting to think more like he thinks. Another thing you can do, and I, I've done this a lot, is just listen to the Bible. Sometimes it's just hard, sometimes it's hard to read. So I just grab my little Max McLean thing and, and throw it on in the car and just, and just listen to it. And again, there's all kinds of stuff. I, I, I could turn on sports radio, not saying that it's sinful to do that, but turning that on is, is not going to do anything in terms of renewing my mind. It's just not. So, I'm, so I'm, I'm over here. I'm in the car being squeezed into a mold as I'm in the car. Like sports radio is not going to stop me from being squeezed into that mold. All right? So it becomes an issue of priorities. Either way, we have to get into the word. And notice that he says that, that it's that by testing, right? That by testing you may discern. That testing is not, it's not testing in the sense of standing in judgment over God's word as though, as though we're God and we can just kind of just test his word in that way. Uh, no, rather it's, it's as you go through your life with your mind const- constantly being renewed by the word, you can actually demonstrate that God's will is excellent. You can demonstrate through experience that his will is excellent. So if you look at uh, Hebrews chapter 5, I think, it, I think the idea is here in Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 11, it says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. And then listen to this last phrase. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil by those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's what he's talking about when he says testing. It's, 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 it's you know, biblical maturity, it's not measured by age, by how old we are. It's measured by our powers of discernment, being able to distinguish from good, between good and evil. You know, you can, you can be a Christian for a very, very, for many, many years, but not as advanced in maturity as you should be 
And you can have another person who's only been a Christian for a few years. And while they may not have that life experience, they're in the word. And, and through the word, their discernment is being built. They're growing in maturity. And so let me just, just as we close, just want to just say, okay, so what does this look like? It sounds kind of uh, philosophical. What, okay, what is this? Let's, let's put some legs on this. So you have a biblical text, right? Okay, what does it mean to test the text and through testing develop? Proverbs 11, verse 14. Proverbs 11, verse 14 says, Where there's no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. Now, what we could do is we could go through life and make all kinds of important decisions, life-changing decisions, without ever getting any counsel at all, and then reap the consequences of doing that. And when we do that, and we go back to the word (laughs) over time, we say, oh man, I should have gotten counsel about that. God's will is right. His word is right. So that the next time the situation comes up, you can get counsel instead of trying to do it on your own. Another example, Psalm 16:4 says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Right? This idolatry is bad. It increases sorrows. Well, we can know that from, re- you know, from reading the story of Israel. and see, Israel, they went through some bad things. But over time, as we give in to the idols that Garrett talked about earlier and see over and over again that it makes us miserable, that it doesn't, it doesn't fulfill in the promises that it makes and it always takes away, we can say over time, Lord, you're right. You're right. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Help me, God. Give me grace that I would not run after idols. Last example. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, speaking of Jesus, for he cannot deny himself. It's one thing for a person who's been a believer for a year to read that and say, Amen, God is faithful. It's another thing for a person who's been walking with Jesus for 35 years to wake up in year 36 and say, yeah, he's faithful, even when I'm faithless, because you have a 35-year track record of his faithfulness. In that, you're testing, you're showing that God's word and his will is right, it's pleasing, it's perfect. So let us be a people who remembers God's works. Let us be a people who reject worldliness. Let us be a people who are rooted in God's word. Last thing that I have to say is that do you notice how Jesus fulfills this passage? Do you notice that Jesus is the embodiment of the mercies of God? Do you notice that Jesus was not merely a living sacrifice, but he was the ultimate sacrifice who gave himself up for us. You notice that that Jesus was never in any kind of way conformed to the pattern of this world, but he actually died for the world. Do you notice that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the will of God? 
what's good, what's acceptable, what's perfect. Our mindset should not be, I have to read the Bible, I have to pursue holiness. No, rather, our question should be the same as the psalmist. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? And the hymn, the hymn writer answers, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your tender mercies that you've shown us in Christ. We pray, Father, for anyone here who does not know you, um, that uh, even as we sing, that you would convince them of the truthfulness and the reality of these things. And help us, Lord, that we would not be conformed to this world, but that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We need you, Lord. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.